Well, today we're studying the next passage in Jonah, Jonah 2, verses 8 through 10. I see it's up on the screen for you. And we're looking at Jonah's belly theology. This is a continuance of Jonah's spiritual autobiography. And in this passage, he recounts how he's gaining a godly perspective, finally, right, that he didn't have throughout chapter 1. And in the passage, Jonah recites his deep theological reflections. And it turns out for him to be a joyful worship experience all while he's hemmed into this tight, putrid belly of this great fish. And you might consider his spiritual reflections truly to be that, a belly theology, the belly of the fish. So let's read the passage together, verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2. Those who regard idols forsake their loving kindness. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. We're going to spend our time together working through Jonah's spiritual ruminations during those three days and those three nights while he was in the belly of the fish. And as to the outline, you see we're delving into this belly theology that is reflected in verses 8 and 9, but it's realized then in verse 10. First, you see in verse 8, the hopelessness of idolatry, the hopelessness of idolatry. Second, in verse 9, you see the hope of true faith. And thirdly, in verse 10, you see the help of the one true God. And so we're going to begin with his first theological reflection, which is that idolatry is hopeless. It leads only to despair. It is empty worship and leaves the worshiper always and only empty. Verse 8, he reflects how those who regard worthless idols forsake their loving kindness. And here in verse 8, we see this ongoing prayer in chapter 2 for Jonah in this context of this perilous and entirely erroneous and prideful sea voyage that he takes just to get away from the command of God to go preach to the Ninevites. He believed so deeply that these Assyrians over in their big city of Nineveh were unworthy of God's salvation. And so he refused to go preach repentance to them. Instead, he hightails it the other direction, gets on board a ship full of pagan idolaters, and in the hopes of fleeing the command of God, he also hopes to flee the very presence of God. And we know that that doesn't work. And chapter 1 is just chock full of this irony in order to demonstrate how God is so perfectly near to Jonah in every, every detail, even though he's attempting to escape him. Why? It's because the resounding theme of Yahweh's sovereignty is what motivates this sense of his presence. He wields supreme and sovereign acts of power in order to, near this prophet, reclaim him from his wayward ways, and bring him back into a willful submission that we see now bearing fruit in chapter 2. So at our point in the study, uh, Jonah really has been suffering so greatly. It's high-handed sin, and now he's getting some pretty deep consequences. He's bound like a slave to Yahweh, hemmed in tight in the putrid belly of a fish, unable really to move. Self-will, long forgotten. It's out the window. Now is the time for that depth of reflection that can only come from a man who has hit rock bottom. That man who has become broken and destitute. He is hopeless. He has no more resources to put up a fight against Yahweh. And if he tried, it just wouldn't work. He can't even move. So looking to what we saw last week in chapter 2, verse 7, Jonah has remembered Yahweh. And so he's prayed to him with confidence, you see in that verse, that this omnipotent God would hear him and would respond by delivering him from his rock bottom, that stomach of the fish. And so we enter into that first theological reflection of this belly theology in our verse, verse 8. Well, he recounts how he remembered Yahweh And he's thinking of the direct opposite to remembering Yahweh. What is the opposite of divine help? It's that empty act with its empty result that you call idol worship. Worshiping a god of your own imagination. 
So he's contrasting here his prayers that he's making in this moment to the one, to the one true God with those empty, vain prayers of an empty lifestyle that is fruitless and powerless among all the pagans of the world. Those that were on his ship before they hit their rock bottom and those that are still in Nineveh. And you can't help but picture that, that the Ninevites are in his view here. Those old salts up on the upper deck before their conversion. These are the ones who he speaks of as those who regard worthless idols. You know, Jonah has remembered Yahweh now. And he wants to set a real philosophical even, but a spiritual distance between himself and those people. Okay, so we see this contrast here. So let's talk about those people, then we can talk about Jonah, and then we can compare the two and see if there really is this distance that he thinks exists. Well, the people that Jonah has in view regard worthless idols. What does this mean? Well, we could trace it back to a similar expression from King David in Psalm 31, verse 6. He states his aversion to those, in his words, who regard worthless idols. Same phrase. And in both cases of David, Psalm 31, 6, and here in verse 8 with Jonah, it's important that we contrast how pagan worship works with regard to the worship of the one true God. So it all focuses around this term here, regard. What does it mean to regard? Well, pretty easily we understand it's to pay regard. It's to watch. It's to observe. It's to keep. Think about all the times that that connects with obedience. Obedience to the object of your worship. And obedience takes dedication. So in terms of the idolater here, although it's an empty worship, it is a a passionate, continual, consistent, regular attempt to be dedicated to something that doesn't exist. This is idolatry. The idolater commits his entire self to this effort to obey instructions of false gods, gods of his own imagination or of his people, or simply put, himself. And if we were talking about those who worship Yahweh, then we would be very pleased at this, this regular, committed, dedicated obedience to our object of worship is great. It's exactly what we would expect of anyone. There will be fruit on the other side. But it's that same level of commitment that we should expect from idolaters, even though what they chase after doesn't even exist. Do you think of them that way? Or do you think that they just are like how some atheists would say, well, I don't think about any of this. Well, okay, then you're thinking about yourself. You're putting yourself at the helm. And now all of your religiosity, all of your commitments, all of your regular practices are for yourself. This is worship. This is obedience to self. Obedience still to a false god. Something lesser than the one who is true. The one true God. They want to be good and faithful servants like we do. But they have somebody else in view. And it is all going to come crashing down. And so this is the difference with the idea of regard. We regard one who exists. They regard something who doesn't. And they hunger to produce the fruit of their obedience in what? In success, health, all of the material ways. Uh, Anything that we could imagine that we want, maybe we can get from chasing after this. Maybe we can get from chasing after that. If we could just regard and obey more and more of these rules, then we could work ourselves out of our troubles and arrive at a higher plane of existence. This is idolatry. It's this base, lifelong pursuit to obey what they consider true when Scripture says that all of that is false. It's just selfish cravings. It's just legalism on the one hand, lawlessness on the other, because it's not God's law. And it's, it's laws that you couldn't keep even if you wanted to. All of this idolatry is to fulfill fleshly lusts. Selfishness at the heart of it. This is the emptiness of religion. But what does, else does it say that they regard here? It's worthless idols. And so if we flesh that out, you could turn to Isaiah 44. Um, I don't 
I don't have specific verses, so just to give you a picture of Isaiah 44, that's something you'll want to reference here, considers this process of carving or crafting an idol. And it's trying to show the futility of the whole exercise, the whole process of creating a god of your own imagining. Isaiah in Isaiah 44 speaks of wood that is used by the idolater. It's a really great reference. He says half of it is used as fire for the furnace, fire for the oven, just to burn up, which will have a, a terminus just in a few hours. And another part that then gets whittled down into an image to worship. Both come from a log. And the pagan can't see how worthless and unhelpful their inanimate idols truly are. They could easily just be burned up as kindling, let alone uh, something that just collects dust on the shelf. There is no purpose to any of it, but they don't see that. And at least the wood saved for the fire would help the idolater as long as it's burning. It has some kind of function. The other just sits on an altar. But the, the, the fallacy of all of it is that it'll achieve some kind of an end that is worth all of this paying of regard. And really, this is the worst indictment of all, and it's in the second part of our verse, verse 8. And Jonah says it so well. He says that these idolaters, what does it say? He says they forsake their loving kindness. Now, this can be somewhat of a troubling phrase to, to, to translate, and one commenter, commentator, I think, says it really well. He says that this idea of forsaking their loving kindness, uh, talking in the context of idolaters, really means that these pagan worshipers, quote, miss the grace that could be theirs. They miss the grace that could be theirs. And maybe that's the best way to understand the pronoun there in this phrase, as it fits with loving kindness. It's not their loving kindness. They don't offer anything. The idols are just collecting dust or they're getting burned up at some point. They don't offer any loving kindness. So what is it? They're forfeiting the loving kindness of God that could be theirs. And I think that's fair. I think that's a great way to translate it because the focus in the prayer here with Jonah is God's salvation. It's God at the helm. God doing the hemming to Jonah and God pointing Jonah to those who need to forsake their idols. The trouble is, they have forsaken the loving kindness, the faithfulness, and the grace of God. And this is what points to the very fact that it's their fault. It is their fault. The idolaters are at fault for pouring themselves into something that doesn't work, something that doesn't exist in the face of a God who, who proclaims his glories from the heavens, Psalm 19.1. And now all of that glory which is missed comes crashing down on their head as the wrath of God. The glory of God in Psalm 19.1, according to Romans 1.18, becomes the wrath of God on them in all of their ungodliness. Because they have what? Suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They refuse this testimony of Yahweh and they won't worship him. But they'll take a log out of the forest and they'll do something with it. They'll build an altar in their home and they'll pray to it. And so what have they forsaken? They've forsaken the loving kindness of God. Now, here in the verse, loving kindness really is, it's perfect belly theology. This is in uh, such perfect terms. Jonah is using the term that we know. It's hesed. Hesed. The idea here is God's grace, God's promise-keeping faithfulness, his loyal love, his unilateral, sovereign act of bestowing grace to his chosen people. He alone has promised to maintain this grace for all of eternity. But those Ninevites, they'll have none of this. As they see the glory of God, they'll deny it, and they'll put all of their payment of, of worth and obeisance and ritual, not toward God, but into a piece of wood or stone or into self. And so the glory of God becomes the wrath of God for them. They have forsaken his hesed. Now, Psalm 59, 
Verses 16 and 17 are very helpful. I want to read this to you. Psalm 59, 16 and 17 refer to God's hesed as the believer's hope and source of joy. This is what distinguishes the one who chases after uh, anything but God's hesed and the one who receives it. Rather than empty worship, now we see it fulfilled. Psalm 59, 16 and 17. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness, your hesed, in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me hesed, who shows me loving kindness. Those who worship false gods know nothing of that divine help at all. And they don't know anything about his deliverance. They have actively and willfully forsaken his hesed. And they are now under condemnation for that. So we side with Jonah on this point that the pagan idolater is at fault for what has become. If you worship a false god, if you you deny what he has provided, it becomes your wrath can't benefit from it. And that's where Jonah lands. But, there's a big but here. Jonah knows something himself about forsaking the loving kindness of God, doesn't he? Jonah knows something about what animates and fuels and drives those pagans. Because up until now, he's been acting like one. Chapter 1 of his story paints this very grim picture of his false beliefs and his practices, and I don't think there would be anything distinguishing Jonah on that upper deck before the storm compared to those old salts that are there, ready to worship their own pagan deities, fueled and animated to, to pay respect to anything but God. That sounds like Jonah. Sounds like he was this false prophet rather than a true prophet for that whole time. All of his disobedient thoughts, all of his rebellious actions, all of this would suggest that he was a prophet to a God of his own imagining. That he was a prophet not to Yahweh, but in willful defiance of Yahweh toward himself. He then became self-sufficient, self-righteous, both legalistic with what he would take and do and live up to, and lawless at the same time, just like any idolater around him. Indistinguishable. Play Where's Waldo, Find the Prophet. There isn't one. Not on that upper deck. Not at that time. And not as he was sleeping in the belly of the ship while he's down below. Smug in his sin. Self-reliance to the max. Absolutely disinterested in the presence of God. That very nearness. You remember it takes a pagan captain to come wake him up, to get him to pray to his God? I mean, he's as pagan as the rest of them. Actually, they were better pagans than he was. At least they were praying at that whole time. This was an attempt to escape God, this active repudiation of everything that he was called to believe about God. And so if Jonah is going to make a contrast here, he needs to realize that he acted no better than a pagan. He actively forsook God's grace for a season. And it was nasty. But, the other but. He's in the belly of the fish now. He's in the belly of the fish, and he comes to his senses. He once again affirms that Yahweh is faithful to the people of his covenant. That's why he's using this term, loving kindness. He's tracing Old Testament theology and saying that this is who God is. I denied it for a season, but I love him for it now. His grace, his unmitigated, unilateral help toward me, who acted like a pagan. We have to expect that Jonah is now filled with tears of repentance. Can you see this? How he would be at this point in his prayer, in the belly of the fish, he would have just tears streaming out of him, screaming out, I have forsaken you like a pagan. That was me. Yes, he's contrasting himself with the pagans by talking about those people. But he knows very well that he was just like one of them. I imagine that in the belly of the fish, he's wailing for forgiveness. That he wants God to remove his self-worship 
and replace it with true worship. I imagine that where he used to say, I know better than God, he's showing real contrition, showing that God had a perfect plan the whole time. So if this is the case, that the Gentiles, yes, can be contrasted on the basis of who they worship, then it's really a poor contrast when we talk about Jonah when he was on the upper deck of the ship or when he was in the belly of the ship. But there is a contrast now with the Jonah who is in the belly of the fish because he understands that deep down in his idolatrous heart that he had been nurturing, that he was really no different. And if he's no different, then would this God of compassion, this God of grace, look to perhaps other pagans and give them grace? And he's done that as the ship was threatening to pull itself apart, right? He did that to many pagans in chapter 1. Where does he need to go, though? He needs to go to Nineveh. And he needs to say, hey, I was just like you, and guess who met me in the belly of the fish? A kind and compassionate God who maintains an everlasting hesed. And he needs to go take that message. I think what we're seeing is that just as he's been delivered from the bondage of his sin, he now understands what it would take for them to be delivered from their bondage of sin. And it would be repentance, just like he's experienced here. A fascinating, fascinating moment in that belly. That's some belly theology. Now, as you go on in verse 9, you see this next major kind of breakthrough moment in Jonah. You see that he, he understands the hope of true faith. He's come to his limit. He's at rock bottom. There's nowhere else for him to go. And all of his pagan leanings have not earned him anything. It has been empty worship. And so instead, instead of that hopelessness, he finds his hope in the true faith in Yahweh. And that's really the message of verse 9. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, he says. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Well, he's going to really deepen this contrast with the pagans. Now that he, he sees himself as one who is back to true and lasting and fruitful worship of Yahweh. And what does he say? But as for me. Huge little phrase. What is happening in there is he, he's getting to this recognition that he's actually being sanctified. And he's... If, the, if it's true that there's any distance between him and any other pagan, it's starting to grow. It's starting to grow. You see, there's always been a distance while he's been in the belly of the fish, even if he were angry at God, even if he were still relying on self in those first few moments, just gasping for any kind of an error. But that was just a distance of a, a fathom or two of the sea. That was a distance between the depths and the surface. But he was just like them. But now, do you see him different? Do you see what's happening is there's a distance that's being created. But as for me, he starts out, it's because he's growing in the Lord. He's being sanctified. Now, he's in a different place than any false worshiper. The phrase, but as for me, implies that he's no longer doing what the idolaters do. He's no longer forsaking the loving kindness that could be theirs. He's grabbed onto it. And so now he is, although he's stuck inside a fish, although he's swimming, and so what do we see? We see the heartfelt conviction turn immediately into practice because he's praying. He's praying to Yahweh, something that he hadn't been doing. And so this whole chapter, as, as he's recounting the experience of his devastating losses, and as he's coming into a newfound, newly kindled devotion, He's actually practicing the very thing that a Christian would practice today, that an Old Testament saint would practice then, that which would be expected of a true prophet. True worship, not empty worship, by praying to God. And that's what he's doing. And so he specifies actually three actions that are going to accompany this newfound commitment and conviction. And he specifies it right here. The first is, he says, when he gets out of this place, And he really does believe he's going to get out. 
that deliverance actually includes physical deliverance from the fish, he says, I will sacrifice to you. You see that phrase? I'll sacrifice to you. You know, it seems like Jonah probably is thinking as soon as he can get back on land, he's going to march over to Jerusalem and he's going to make sacrifices. He's going to have a public portrayal of his thankfulness to Yahweh. He's going to make offers, uh, offerings of sacrifice for his sin, offerings of thanksgiving, of restored fellowship with Yahweh. He's going to demonstrate those things. This is his goal. Uh, for the types of sacrifices he might have practiced, we could look to Leviticus 1, 2, and 3, just to give that to you. Leviticus 1 to 3 lay out a lot of different kinds of sacrifices that would accompany somebody in a state of true faith, somebody who's actually walking with the Lord. So Jonah's hoping that he can do that soon, and so that is certainly something that he's going to do. He's going to practice this true faith, and he's going to do it in a worthy way according to the prescriptions of the law that he's bound to. You see somebody who doesn't want lawlessness anymore, And somebody who isn't interested in legalism, he's doing it from the heart. The heart is converted. And so now the heart gushes with praise. And it's something he wants everybody to behold. If he had that smidge of faith while he was on that upper deck, he hid it from everyone else. They had to come knocking just in case he had a faith that could work. Now he wants to make it public. That's the idea of making sacrifices. Now, there's a second action of true faith that accompanies this this heartfelt change. And he says he's going to do this, too, when he gets out there. He's going to use a voice of thanksgiving, a voice of thanksgiving. I think that's great enough to point out as as another action. It'll accompany his prayers now. It'll accompany his sacrifices later. He's going to use a voice of thanksgiving. Worshiping a worthy God is not some dreary obeisance. It's not some emotionless ritual. It isn't heartless. It isn't some action performed with trembling hands to appease a divine enemy. That's not what it means to worship the one true God. Sacrifices to the God who has saved you is joyful. It's exuberant. It's a gratitude-filled event. And that's exactly what he's trying to paint as, as the state of his heart now that will turn into action. You know, what's interesting is I, I don't think Jonah's going to wait till he gets out of the fish to start using that exuberant voice. I think he's going to be using an outdoor voice indoors. I think if you really think about Jonah and this, this, this heartfelt change, what's happening is he's just over the moon. You know, he's been repenting, but now is the season for joy. What he will bring later to accompany his sacrifices is more joy, but it starts now. He's not waiting for the emotions to kick in. It's all rooted in the theology that he knows that he's been given God's loving kindness. And, you know, I just have this funny image in my mind that perhaps there's fish swimming right next to this big beast there, and they just, they're like going by, like, what is it that I'm hearing? I think I hear something through, hey, Fred, do you hear? Nah, that can't be. It sounds like a human in there. Nah, they can't be. You know, just imagine how loud that stomach would have been with the joyful praises of somebody who knows really that God has changed his heart. He's already been delivered. He doesn't even have to get out of that belly to know that. You understand? And for us, that is the heart attitude. This is the response. Ephesians 5.19 is really helpful here. It says that those who worship God in truth use words and sounds and music. And Ephesians 5.19 says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with their hearts to the Lord. If you can picture that worship service that's happening right there in the depths of the sea, then you can picture that much more, the contrast, this growing distance between believers and non-believers between those who enjoy the hope of true faith, even in the worst of circumstances. Can't imagine anything worse than that. And idolaters, do you see the contrast? They face their own mortality, but they cry out to their false gods while they curse the one true God, thinking that they're going to get what they want, and when it doesn't work, they'll do it again. And they can keep changing or keep repeating. It wouldn't matter but it's 
never anything compared to one gleeful moment in a trying circumstance, which is for us proof that God exists. And that is so much Jonah right now, and I, I want us to revel with him in this. This is, this is a great thing. He's really growing in the Lord. Now, there's a third action here of true faith that he specifies in the next line. He says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Well, he wants to make very clear that he's wholly dedicated to the Lord. And this dedication takes commitment. He's like David before him, 2 Samuel 24, 24. You'll remember that David is not going to make a sacrifice to God that costs him nothing. And Jonah now, he's saying, I will pay what I have vowed. Now, part of what we need to think is the idea here, although we don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of vows in the Old Testament when we compare to how we make promises, but one thing is to make a vow and to promise to pay it is a lot more than just lip service. It's not to say, get me out of this trouble, and I promise I will. You know, how many times do... Uh, gosh, I made eye contact with my children in the second row. I shouldn't have done that because that's what I'm talking about. You know what that's like. They're, they're under threat of discipline. And so what do they say? But I promise if you don't do, mm, then I won't do, mm, right? And this is this, this bargaining tool. We use vows and we use promises to try and just continue living how we're living. Not so with Jonah. He's going to repay a vow because he's actually been changed. There's, there's no off bellies, rock bottom. He's faced with the ultimate choice. Will he or will he not totally commit his way to the Lord? What, what are the options here? Well, his intention at this point is to be wholly obligated to the full extent of God's law and repay that which he has promised. Now, the expression of that commitment, he says, is a vow. Uh, the main thing that we're saying is, what we can immediately understand, even without getting into the context, is that, that it's not lip service and that it is, it is very much this desire to fulfill on God's terms and not manipulate him on ours. That's really the point here. When we make a promise and don't fulfill it, it was simply a manipulative tool. But a vow made righteously captures a holy intent that is going to result in even more holy actions. Uh, You can think of them, these vows in the Old Testament, as such, that when an ungodly person makes a vow, he just is trying to keep his life as it is, just or, or make it better from his own perspective. Just, you know, these humanistic improvements. Either lateral changes or some kind of upward climb, you know, according to his own design, and that's what he wants from God. So I'll do whatever it takes to fulfill my goal. But salvation uh, or a vow for one who is godly is a response to God's salvation in the past, and it's a declaration that my life from now moving forward is simply going to reflect my thankfulness and to pursue continual change toward holiness. See, Jonah in the belly of the fish is now growing in sanctification. He's, he's less and less like those pagan idolaters as the days go on. And, and that distance then is going to be that much more as he grows and lives a committed life. These are the types of vows that we see in the Old Testament. You even see that with Hannah, her vow that she makes in 1 Samuel 1. How does she repay the Lord for his kindness to deliver her? She delivers her son, Samuel, for priestly service, which is exactly fitting with God's uh, salvation plan for Israel. Just amazing. This is not pagan lip service. And so one thing is true, and we're going to test in our minds, and now you know how the story goes on in Jonah 3 and Jonah 4, but we have to ask ourselves, is Jonah going to fulfill the vow that really would correspond to the command he was given? What was he commanded to do? Not just stop at Jerusalem. This is not about Jerusalem. It's about getting to Nineveh and preaching repentance. So we're keeping our eye out, aren't we? Is Jonah sincere? 
Is is he just being kind of prophet in name only? Is this lip service? Or will he fulfill that vow? And chapter 3 will help start us on our answer toward that. Well, the final statement in verse 9 epitomizes the the greatest hope of true faith, and it, it really serves as this capstone in this contrast with pagan idolatry. And it is the most important phrase, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation is the best way to state the kind of physical and spiritual deliverance that Jonah has experienced by the hand of the one true God. It's His deliverance is his salvation. Yahweh's salvation has always marked his life as a prophet by setting him apart for this task. He's always been guiding. There's always a sense to which salvation has this this past event uh, always in the mind of the one who has been saved. And yet salvation extends to the present as we see when he's wrapped around in the depths by seaweed as he's filling up his lungs with water seconds away from death before being swallowed by that fish, you see salvation in the presence as that temporal, real, actual deliverance. But then we understand that salvation belongs to Yahweh in the future, past, present, and future, because it has eternal ramifications, eternal blessings. Salvation and the benefits of salvation never end. Why? Because Yahweh, as Hebrews 13.8 says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he is our sure reality, the one that we can look back on and see when he saved a believer like us, what he is doing to continually save us in the present, and what he has destined as our ultimate salvation and our glorification in the future. And that's Romans 11.3. 36, that salvation is from him, it's through him, and it is to him. The the fullest, uh, most comprehensive view of salvation is it belongs to Yahweh. It is his unique possession. He delivers his children from sin. He executes a plan that's perfect in its perfect way and its perfect time. And it brings us to that question, is there a cut stone or a carved log that has ever had one scintilla of thought for the one trying to worship it? Has it ever had a future plan destined from eternity past in order to bring someone into his plan of salvation at the perfect time in the perfect way? Absolutely not. But the Lord's purposes will be established, Isaiah 46 says. He will accomplish all of his good pleasure. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And so Jonah understands this. Jonah understands God's sovereignty over salvation. And salvation reaches so far beyond just salvation from drowning. And and he's aware of this. It is his, in this moment, his deliverance from his self-sufficiency, from the false worship that characterized his heart. It's his... Salvation from paganism. Now, will it be the salvation of the Ninevites too? That's the question we're asking. Does Jonah get that? Does Jonah understand that Yahweh possesses salvation and is willing to extend it to pagans just like him, albeit different? And so this is the, that kind of belly theology that is bringing him to the heights of worship while he is in the depths of the sea. And finally, he's understanding so, so much. And that's where we would say the theology is reflected in those verses. But it's another thing to see how it becomes proven to him in reality. How do you, how do you make concrete that which could even sound theoretical? I mean, this is the ruminations of a man probably with really, really high carbon dioxide levels. You know, I mean, he's in the belly of a fish. But then verse 10 sweeps in and shows the salvation in practice. Read verse 10. Then Yahweh spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Well, that statement perfectly cements our understanding that idolatry really is hopeless. It couldn't do that, verse 8. And it also shows us that true faith is the sinner's 
only hope, and that's what we saw in verse 9. There's, there's a promise in that, uh, in that worship of the one true God, and that is salvation in him. And now verse 10 bears it out, bears out that salvation in the present with physical deliverance from the fish. Well, sometime after Jonah had finished his prayers and he was spiritually restored, then Yahweh spoke to the fish. Do you remember in the last chapter at the very end, verse 17, Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, with equal power and ease, he speaks to the fish. This is God in his sovereign power who spoke all things into existence. We were even talking about that this morning in uh, Abner Chow's sermon. The, the God who creates with a word has now in some way used a word to, to cause this fish to do yet another act of deliverance for this prophet. Has it ever been difficult for God to speak? Certainly we would have been fine if it were just him appointing, again, the fish to vomit him out. But the idea of the power and the, this, this creative work and this deliverance of God that comes through speaking is so important for Jonah and is so important for us. It speaks the world into existence. Jesus shouted at the wind and the waves. Jesus called with words to Lazarus to rise from the tomb. And now God has spoken to the fish. That's powerful, but it's also simple for him. It's just him being omnipotent and him being omnipresent. He can employ his creation for his saving purposes however he wants. And what a great image that all that is true about the salvation that he alone possesses, now we see it actually come to bear in the present for Jonah. So that's Yahweh speaking. Did you notice, and you might not have, and it talks about how Jonah starts to speak a prayer. There's something very intimate about this powerful and yet easy word of deliverance that God gives. When you think about it within the, as a bookend to Jonah's prayer. So in the beginning, Jonah is praying words. And now Yahweh is speaking a word. There's a request in words that is met with a word. And it will resolve this temporary problem and move Jonah further down into the next stage of his deliverance. And it was with a word because Yahweh spoke at the end of his prayer. I think that's very intentional. I think that's very intimate. It's the God who wields his power with words, without words. And here he's used a word for this man that up until then has just been an idolater like any of them that Jonah would have wanted thrown out of the kingdom. This is power, but it is a personal, intimate power to save him in that moment. And then, and then, And in fact, the word in the passage next is then. In a gurgle, in a gush, comes Jonah's physical deliverance. Right? This last phrase of the chapter says it all. The fish vomited Jonah up onto the land. Now it's finally, after this long, time to trigger that gag reflex. You know, this fish has had him in his belly for long enough. Now it's time to bring him out. Now... This is pretty gross, right? When we talk about vomit, it's pretty gross. Uh, Somehow I got stuck with preaching the end of the last chapter when we had to get into Jonah being placed into this putrid belly of the fish. And now I'm the one talking about him being pulled out of it. And it's equally as gross. But the reality is there's something to this churning of the stomach of the fish that is really important for us. Now, I'm not going to call it a vomit theology. (laughs) I think we have enough theology this morning. But we could. We could. It's an image of vomit that is placed in Scripture in order, get this, to gross you out. It's designed to be negative. 
All right, now it is deliverance, which is incredibly positive, but there's something inherently negative about vomit when you read it in Scripture. So, okay, so, okay, let's do it. Here's your vomit theology. Okay, here's a few references that you're going to want to look at, which show really the, the evil but also the disgusting implications of vomit across Scripture. Leviticus 18.25. Leviticus 18.25 says, The land had spewed out its inhabitants because they only defile it, and it needs to be purged of their evil. So the spewing out shows up in Leviticus 18.25. You see it in Job 20, verse 15. A rich man may try to consume his wealth. This is the, the emphasis here, but God is going to cause him to vomit up his riches. Okay. Pretty gross. Jeremiah 25.27. Vomit is just the natural course of a, of a drunk man as he's being judged, even in his body. But here it says he'll also be followed by the sword. Judgment doesn't end with uh, vomiting up the poisons that he's put in. In 2 Peter 2.22, false prophets act worthlessly and turn away from the truth like a dog returns to its own vomit. Okay, that's about false prophets. And then finally in Revelation 3.16, you knew this was coming, Christ himself is disgusted by the lukewarm spiritual apathy of the Laodicean church and says what? I will vomit you out of my mouth. So back to Jonah 2.10. When you see this act of vomiting, of course you see deliverance because he's going to now get out of the fish, but you also see what one commentator has said. It's that all of this vomit idea is to remind Jonah of his putrid track record. See, on the way to deliverance, it's one final reminder that like those false worshipers that forsook the loving kindness of God and it is their fault, this is Jonah's fault. Jonah put himself here. And now comes the vomit. His attitude toward God, his attitude toward the pagans of Nineveh, salvation belongs to Yahweh. The vomit is a real thing that he needs to be aware of. But ultimately, salvation means he's going to get onto land in terms of deliverance for him. That is God's plan. What a great thing. The the, the passage ends by saying that he was vomited onto dry land. If you think about it, in God's sovereign control over all things, the, the, the storm, the ship, the, 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 the understanding of the sailors, and now all that is happening within the fish itself shouldn't surprise you to hear that, that many commentators believe that the land that Jonah is spewed out onto is Joppa, where he first caught the boat. See, he was trying to run from Joppa, now God's brought him right back. You can make any type of circuitous loop you want, and the fish can spend days going around, but when it comes time to bring you back, your deliverance is going to help set you back on track with where you need to go from there. And so now it's going to be up to Jonah. Will he walk in a manner worthy of his calling on dry land? Will he continue that belly theology as he goes no longer toward Tarshish, but now toward the people that, like him, really need Yahweh's repentance. And that's the big question that we're left with as we get to this halfway mark in the book. And as we close out our study, I'll just take a moment to ask you a personal question. This is one that perhaps we don't want to be asked. Today, you today, me today, Are you living like Jonah lived in the belly of the ship or like Jonah lived in the belly of the fish? Are you the unrepentant, self-reliant Jonah that is prophet in name only, seems to be a believer, can do his normal types of, we would say today, Christian duties that can show up, put on the brave face, but live entirely as if God either neither existed Or is not near to me? Or will you be like Jonah with no more options? The one who sees he needs deliverance right now. 
And that has to come from Yahweh. So I will worship him. And I will then shout exuberantly, first with the tears of repentance, which Jonah are you today? It's a very real thing to ask if you're a Christian idolater. I'm not calling you a pagan idolater. I'm calling you a Christian idolater. If you, if you sit in the pews and absorb, and yet Christ is not there, you're nurturing your thoughts with self-righteousness, self-justifying acts, self-sufficiency throughout the rest of the week. The one who sits on the pews is not the one who is behind closed doors during the week. Sunday versus the rest of the week. These are really personal questions for you. But the person God wants you to be this morning is like Jonah in the belly of the fish, contending with self-righteousness. Contending with that subtle paganism. How? Through heartfelt prayer. Come back to the Lord. Expose the idolatry of the heart. Show where you are, like Luther would say, an idol factory. You're constantly producing new and lesser forms to worship. But Yahweh alone possesses salvation. It belongs to him. And the kind of belly theology you need to have is the kind that will help you to create distance from all of that self-righteousness and then move in a worthy walk toward your heavenly domain, even now. And that's where we are as believers, questioning whether or not we, as we come into our own chapter 3, as we think about our week ahead, will we take what he is teaching us and apply it and now live in only the godliness that he can provide with thankful hearts, that type of gratitude, that responds to him, the one who has secured for us salvation? Or will we continue to fight our battles without him in an empty way with no results? These are questions we need to ask ourselves, and I pray that you will. Let's close. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for bringing us through some very intimate and difficult moments in the life of Jonah. Thank you for all that you taught him there in the belly of the fish. And I pray that we would be those types of Christians that are willing to contend with ourselves and find you to be our only hope in life and in death and for all eternity. Help us to walk in a worthy way on dry land, fulfilling the vow that we have made to you to live in thankful service, however you would use us, that you would be glorified and that you would call many people who were like us at one time to repent and to believe and to walk along with us as we walk toward our heavenly home. Thank you so much through Jesus Christ, to whom all praise and all honor is due, through whom and in whom and to whom all praise and glory for our salvation is to be rendered. Amen.